right, Peter, you were asking a question that seems to have a yes or no answer in the sense of uh, talking about the hindrances. For each kind of hindering thought, you're asking, is there a particular antidote for that particular one, or are just any wholesome thoughts in general okay? The answer to that is both. There are specific things that you can uh, think about that would be both in general and in uh, and in specific. And that one of those kinds of things that would be a both kind of answer would be the very specific answer to a particular thought of, oh, I don't have to think about that right now. Okay, so that's very specific. This thought that I'm having, I don't have to have that thought right now. But you can also see how that could be generally applied because you could say that to just about any thought. And so the hindrances are uh, basically in the sense that if the hindrances are, are um, let us say, doing the service for which they get the name, and that is the, the service of being a hindrance then recognizing it uh, that this is a hindrance as a hindrance will generally always evoke that particular statement of, wow, I don't need that right now. Uh-huh. Which is in, in, in a vein is exactly the same thing that the Buddha was saying when he was saying, aha, I see you. Aha, uh -huh, I see you has that quality of and, I, and be gone. I don't need you now. This is not something that's uh, useful, valuable, or wholesome right now. So this is the way that we can begin to deal with the hindrances. But there's an underlying point, and that is, is that we have to start to develop the skill of seeing what is a hindrance as a hindrance and what is not a hindrance. Because there, there will come times when this particular activity in the beginning is always a hindrance. And then later it's seen as a hindrance. And then it's dropped and then later it can be come back and revisited and it's now not a hindrance. So everything is subject to being up in the air. Everything is subject to change. This is why everything requires a new investigation. A basic way of looking at it is, is that coming to a conclusion about something, is there going to be a hindrance when it changes? Because the conclusion that we made is no longer valid. It needs to be reinvestigated, perhaps tweaked, perhaps thrown out completely. So the whole idea then is, is that let us get good at detecting what a hindrance is. And basically what we do about it then becomes fairly easy. Once we recognize that this is in fact a hindrance. So that's the real work. The real work is to uh, look at things correctly so that we can see it as a hindrance. Now this is massively distinctive than um, the choiceless awareness or the Mahasi method of noting. Because in the choiceless awareness, the whole idea is, is to see what is there, but then don't make any choices about it. It's almost like, um, let us say that for some reason or another, you get shot with an arrow. And here that arrow is sticking in. And people will say, never mind, that's okay. When in fact that arrow may be smeared with poison is deadly. We need to see that that arrow as a hindrance, right? Something that needs to be pulled out. Now, generally, what happens with those kinds of things is is that we we say, wait a minute, before you take this thought out, we need to investigate it. 
with the analogy of the arrow, then we can say that the guy says, because isn't in fact, this is the sutta that I'm beginning to, so I might as well let you in on what's going on here. This is sutta number uh, 64 in the Majjhima Nikaya. And the story there is that someone gets shot with an arrow and his friends see that he was shot with an arrow and call the physician and the physician arrives and the guy who was shot with the arrow he says, wait a minute, before you take this arrow out, let's investigate this arrow. Who shot me with this arrow? What kind of bow did he use? What kind of uh, feathering? What kind of point? All of that kind of stuff needs to be known and understood very well before you can pull out the arrow. Now, the question would be is, is that knowing this arrow after it shot me, does that mean now that if I know this arrow, I can avoid being shot with this this kind of arrow again? The answer is probably not. Probably not. You might get shot with another arrow. And so the distinctions and the details of this particular arrow is not important. What's important to know is, is that it's dangerous to have this arrow sticking in, and it needs to be pulled out. That's the way that we then start dealing with the hindrances. It's number one is to see a hindrance as a hindrance, and then number two, to pull it out, ever how it can get out. We need it to be pulled out. That's the point, okay? So the two issues is one, seeing, a, uh, seeing dukkha as dukkha, and then number two is abandoning it or pulling it out immediately as soon as we recognize that this is, uh, a hindrance or this is an arrow sticking in and that we do not go through the investigation of who shot me okay but in fact that's very much uh, the who shot me is the question that winds up being an entire uh, aspect of psychology that is often referred to as archaeological psychology or psychological archaeology, whichever. So the psychological archaeology means that we deal in our past to try to figure out why we are messed up the way that we're messed up. The cute little story is, is that the guy's been dealing with the psychiatrist and we've been talking about this kind of stuff, and then he relates the story that he got a spanking when he was four years old. And the sly old psychotherapist says, hmm, your mama spanked you when you were four years old. That must be why you're an asshole now. <laughs> but that's not looking at it correctly. Possibly what happened was is that his mom gave him a spanking because he was already an asshole at the age of four. And so doing that kind of archaeology is un unuseful. It's not wholesome to try to figure out how things got started. Rather, the important point is, what do we do about it right now? So the answer to that is, right now we want to remove that hindrance and we want to do any and everything we can to get, out, get it out. This leads us then to the understanding of karma that leads to the end of karma. What do we mean by that? That's, that's also one of the deeper teachings of the Buddha. The karma that brings the end of karma. It gets started from the fact that most people see that good action is, leads to good results, that's good karma, and bad action that leads to bad results. And this is the normal teaching. So you better be good, you better not pout, you better not cry, you better not shout, I'm telling you why. You're being watched. He's keeping a list. He's checking it twice, and he's going to find out if you're nodding, and if he is, he's going to bust your ass, okay? This is how we're taught. We're taught about this issue of comma, but here we're not looking at that kind of action. We're looking at, uh, in fact, the reality is, is that most action is mixed. Most action is, in fact, defined as good because of the result that came out to be good. For example, if you buy stock and the stock goes up, 
and you sell it when it went up, that means that it was a good buy-sell. If you buy the stock and then you sell it when it's uh, lower than that, then that's a bad buy, right? The selling determined whether the buying was good or not. But when we bought the stock, we didn't know whether it was going to be a good, we hoped that it was going to be a good act, but we didn't know for sure. Another example is, is that in team sports, when the penalty flag goes on to play, half the team shouts for joy. Yeah, that was a good call. And the other half says, boo, I don't like that the penalty flag is there. Okay. So was that penalty flag a good call or not? Depends upon who you ask. It's mixed. Every result, every action generally has a mixed result. But the Buddha says that there's also a fourth kind of action, and the fourth kind of action is an action that uh, is neither good nor bad. It's neither bright nor dark. It's just an action. But that if this kind of action brings the end to action. This is the kind of fourth quality. So an action that uh, has... Uh, no good or no bad into it is just an action. So if we have an action that is uh, not dukkha, that we're not harming ourselves, we're not harming anyone, then it's not a dark action. And if we're not doing it for any gain, but I do this because I want that, if the action is I'm just doing this, then it's free also from having the good or the bad aspects. It's just an action. But this kind of action leads to the end of action. Now, let me give you many examples of what we're talking about when we mean by an action that leads to the end of action. One would be a freeway that has a lot of traffic on it. Zip, 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 back and forth very fast. And all we have to do to stop all of that traffic is for the cops to just come up, up put a couple of police cars right in the road. You just put a block up. And now all of that traffic is stopped. Here's another example. A very, very big hook, like a crane, will have a huge hook, and it picks up very heavy loads with that hook. And all we have to do is just take that hook off, and then the crane can go up easily because it doesn't have any load on it. Right? So there's a distinction. All we have to do is that little bit of work right there, and now we don't have to do any other work. It's just uh, another way of thinking about it is, is that you have been driving a car that's had a trailer hitch to it for hundreds of thousands of miles because you didn't know how to take the trailer hitch off. And somebody shows you, oh, this is how you do it. You untwist this thing, you jack this up, and now the car is set free from the trailer. That's an action that leads to the end of action. So what kind of thought then is going to lead to the end of thoughts? are going to be those kind of thoughts that we were talking about. Aha, I see you, Mara. Or, aha, I see that. This is the kind of thought that leads to the end of thought. Because if we don't have those kind of thoughts, if we don't have those wake-up thoughts, then that old stuff will just keep cycling over and over. That poison arrow will continue to poison the body. It has not been pulled out yet. And we let those thoughts just sit and muster and fester and, and, and stay there. And this is the style uh, that we have. We can call that a pity party. Now, there's a certain amount of advantage to having pity parties like this. One of the advantages is that some people think that having an arrow removed is going to be painful. Actually, no. Having it re removed is actually a relief. The pain is going to be there and continue to be there as long as you're, the arrow is stuck in. Okay, but people say, oh, I don't want that arrow to be removed. It's going to be hurt when I pull it out. But that hurt is only just an instant. This hurt that we're talking about of pulling that arrow out is actually right effort. That we have to take the effort to pull it out to take that stuff out of the mind. So your question originally was, what kind of thoughts do I need to do to pull it out? Well, there's a kind of uh, another way of thinking it is that this thought can be used to remove this thought. 
this thought gets stuck in the mind. And so in this regard, I'm thinking about the story of the lion that has a thorn in his claw. And is depending upon the story, it's either a monkey or a crow or a, a rat. I think the rat is the one who chews the, the cords to set the, uh, the lion free. And it was a monkey who took another thorn and dug that other thorn out. The original thorn was taken mm -hmm. out by using a thorn so the thorn is used to remove a thorn okay so the That's second thorn my splinters pardon i said i've had a splinter removed that way before like you take like a pin mm -hmm. take out yeah. the, right the so you would you would take a needle to remove a thorn yeah well in the old days that that might be in fact a thorn that you would use as a needle right and we would use that thorn to remove a thorn. This is exactly how we're going to practice this, but we have to see a thorn as a thorn. We have to see that arrow as a dart or as a poison or as something that needs to be removed. This is the major skill that in fact, once we recognize that this is a hindrance, that's, that should be the, the point, the recognition then so in this regard, this is why the Buddha says that right view, right sati, and right effort run and circle around each other. So that if you see something really clearly, then it doesn't take much effort to get rid of it. An example of that is a rock that's really hot. Somebody hands you a, a rock that's like 300 degrees, almost red hot. You put that in your hand and it burns you immediately. You drop it. Right. So that would mean that very, very hot thoughts could be easily detected of, oh, no, don't go there. And those are very easy to drop. It's the ones where we're not quite sure whether this is actually the problem or not. Let's say that the rock is really warm and we don't know whether it's too hot or not. We have to kind of wait until the skin starts to sizzle before we will take the point that this rock is hot. And we try to talk ourselves into, oh, this rock is not hot. It's not hot. Why? Because I take some advantage then of having this hot rock in my hand. So basically what we're saying is, is that people will take advantage of our hindrances in the sense that we think that there's some advantage there. That, for instance, if we just had an argument with Aunt Susie, and now we're going off someplace and we start thinking about that argument with Van Susie. We're having the idea, oh, I can rethink it. I lost the argument to her because I wasn't sharp enough. I wasn't fast enough. I didn't think of the right thing to say. But now I can think of it. Now I can think of it. And so I start having this argument in my head with Aunt Susie. And I'm taking gratification from that. Because now I've got an answer to her. I'm going to win this argument I'm having in my mind. But what we don't do is we don't then recognize that this gratification that I'm having by continuing the argument in my mind is actually unsettling. This is not really a happy thought. It's really not. I'm getting myself worked up. I'm actually getting angrier and angrier. And guess what? I take delight in that anger also because I cannot see the danger in it. And so this is the real issue about the hindrances is that we have to see the danger in them. And that's why we have to investigate. Once we investigate that investigation, then along with the right effort, so that if we investigate something and we say that mm, it's about 50-50, maybe 51% advantageous and 49% dukkha. Therefore, I'm unlikely to make a big change, right? But if I see it, oh, there's like 5% gratification and 99% dukkha in this, we're going to let that go really easy. <laughs> Okay, so we begin to do a cost-benefit analysis, and what we begin to see that, in fact, this was the delusion that I was attached to 
the 51% gratification where in fact it really wasn't that gratifying at all that I was lying to myself. I wasn't really looking at it that I was attached to the gratification of getting angry. People do feel really powerful when they're angry. But in fact, angry is the response that we have. We talk about it in the sense of fight or flight. The fight means that uh, there's anger in there or defensive uh, that becomes offensive behavior. See, flight is 100% totally defensive. Anytime you stop to defend yourself, that's aggressive. Only running away is defensive. Any standing and fighting to protect yourself, that's offensive. And it's met with offense. So um, when we recognize that we have to investigate this stuff, to recognize that even though that it feels gratifying to be anger, underneath that anger is actually fear that I feel like I'm under attack. So by looking at that, whenever we have uh, feelings of I'm going to tell him or I'm going to write that email or I'm going to fix this deal or all that kind of stuff, the, the right thing to do is to look at our feelings under that. To look at the fact that we're angry right now and we're righteous and we want to get our way and we're going to tell that eBay or that Amazon or that uh, politician what you think of them. Recognize that under that is fear. Fear of being oppressed, fear of them getting taking advantage, fear that uh, I've lost something because they've gained something. And when we can see that that fear in there, now is the time to take that little bit of effort, that second thorn, to remove that thorn. Rather than taking delight in how much I hate that thorn bush because it put a thorn in my finger, instead I can take an advantage by taking that second thorn and removing the first and being completely free of it. This is a way of beginning to think that um, that we need to be on guard to recognize for sure what is a hindrance and what is not a hindrance because what we used to think was fine. Now we're beginning to investigate it more and more, and we're beginning to see not so wholesome, dangerous, in fact, downright dangerous. That, in fact, when we really begin to define hindrance as hindrance, then we can see that the definition of hindrance is anything that's going to hinder me from being absolutely on top of the world, to hinder me from being in a state of feeling that I would really like. So being angry at Aunt Susie because of the argument, that, that kind of anger, that's not really satisfying. That's really not, no, that's, that's agitating. It makes us restless. It makes us want to go do something. It's unsatisfying. So when we recognizing that the unsatisfactory feelings that are associated with the anger actually greatly outweigh the advantages of feeling powerful and getting my way and that kind of stuff. Now we can detect, ah, for sure, this is a hindrance. And when we see for sure this is a hindrance, getting rid of it is the easy part. The next thought. Aha, I see you, Myra. Aha, I see that that's to my disadvantage to be angry at Aunt Susie and continuing the argument with her. And in fact, the right thing to do is to ignore the the topic and let's both cool off. So that the next time I see Aunt Susie, I've got a big smile for her. Why? Because I've forgotten all about the argument. It's in the past now. And so I can let it go. And thinking smile or thinking joy, that would be putting up a wholesome thought? That would be a wholesome thought, precisely. Aha, I don't need to think about Aunt Susie right now. I can sit here and enjoy myself instead. Ah, and you can just think of joy because like joy is the cause for itself. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I was saying offhand in that regard, don't try to have good thoughts about Aunt Susie. Rather have good thoughts about right now, I don't have to deal with Susie. Ah, yeah, okay. Okay, that many people in the West, they want to make that extra jump into Meta. Oh, I should love her. I should have good, warm, happy thoughts about her. Yeah. But no, having good, happy thoughts about her are that close to the hindrance of I just had an argument with her. And so it's yeah. very easy to drop. The best thing to do is to throw the whole show out. Yeah. Not just Susie, but all the family. It's like to take your simile. It's, it feels like if you have this very hot stone in your hand and you put up meta, then you still feel the pain and you just say, oh, Maybe it feels exceedingly hot, but you say that you practice meta still, it feels exceedingly hot and you still hurt yourself. You're is this what you mean? an important point. You're right. This is exactly correct. And what you're actually pointing out that much of the meta that's done in the name of meta actually is polluted. Yeah, because it's pretending, pre pretended, it's pretending is pretending. Oh, yeah. May all beings be happy when deep down inside, I know that's not going to happen. <laughs> May all beings be happy, but deep down inside, I really don't want it to be because I've got some enemies out there. <laughs> <laughs> but instead, you can think of calm or as, as I breathe in, I breathe in joy or mm -hmm. just smile. As, right. And so not thinking about Susie, not thinking about the world, just thinking about what's happening right now. And I don't have anything to do. I don't have to deal with Aunt Susie. I don't have to deal with the world. I don't have to do anything right now except to get my mind back into a clear, happy state to throw those yeah. hindrances out. So the new kind of thoughts are that new thorn that we're going to have that's going to take the thorn of Susie and the argument that I had with her out of the mind are going to be the the kind of thoughts like, wow, everything's okay right now. Wow, I really appreciate the quiet. Wow, yeah. this is a really good breath. And so we start having thoughts about this present moment. And this present moment is in fact secluded then from all of the world, all the world's problems, all the cares, all the arguments are gone now. They're out. And what is there? is happy thoughts, one wholesome thought after another, after another. This would be uh, the way to, to look at it in the sense of uh, getting ourselves into that state by having wholesome thoughts and then using that sharp mind to now really investigate, making sure that what we're investigating and what we're seeing is all wholesome. Because if we start having an unwholesome thought or two in there, that's going to take us out of our state. And then that unwholesome thought is likely to, in fact, uh, take us out of our uh, nice state altogether if we keep having that. But if we can see an unwholesome thought arise and we can catch it, Aha, I see you, out you go, then we can do that quick enough so that it doesn't take us away from our sense of well-being, our sense of feelings that we actually generally have to talk ourselves up. Uh, yeah, the connection broke down. Yeah, I, I still uh, have you. Okay, so you still hear me? Yeah, I can't hear Damrado though, he's frozen on my screen. Yeah, he's frozen on my screen as well. Probably come back in a second. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, you guys froze, so I don't know whose uh, internet it was that went bad. But anyway, what we were uh, talking about was that it takes a little bit of, of time, a few thoughts to get. It's almost like, um, you know, the old style hand pump to where you have to pump and pump and pump and pump to bring the water up until it finally flows out. This is kind of way that it works with the with thoughts that our thoughts are like pumping on our feelings. And if we keep pumping on and keep pumping on it, then that particular feeling will come up. 
which means then that's to our advantage, it's to our disadvantage in the beginning because it takes a few thoughts and, and a bit to work ourselves up to feeling good. Mm. Once we work ourselves up to feeling good, then that does not mean that one stray thought or one hindrance is going to make us feel bad, but if we let it remain, then it will. So we need to catch those thoughts as they come up. One thought or one uh, or just a couple of mind moments spent on uh, Aunt Susie, and then we can catch it. Say, get out, out of here. And then we can and we don't have. To, but if we think long enough about Aunt Susie, we're going to come right out of our state of satisfaction. And so we want to be able to catch the mind in that in-between stage after the hindrances have arisen, but they're not going to remain there long enough to affect our state of joy. That would be one, two, three, or four. If we can't see four mind moments of hindrances in a row, we're more than likely going to have a few more because we're not quite awake. So we need to practice being awake. This is one of the reasons why Anapanasati is so valuable is because of the the quality that if we're intentionally intentionally controlling the breath to make it a long deep in breath and a long deep out breath it actually takes sati to do that you have to remember on this breath to take a long deep out in breath and then to remember to take a long deep out breath this is the sati then, that very sati that we need to also start taking long, deep breaths with the mind also. Which means these uh, uh, the hindrances can be seen easily. This is why just watching the breath, the Mahasi method of just watching, just noting whatever's there, and the mind will immediately start wandering away, and then the attention to that will wander away. But if we have Anapanasati to keep anchoring us so that every breath is a point of Sati, then Sati is going to be pretty close. So when thoughts of Aunt Susie come up and we're actually mindful of having long, deep in-breaths, that means that the Sati is going to be there also for, aha, I see Aunt Susie sneaking in. So this is why we want to use the, uh, the breathing to develop Sati. And we want to also use uh, discernment, right view, to develop that so that we can tell the difference between what we thought was just an ordinary thought. Now we say that that's not just an ordinary thought, it's a junk thought. And then later we see not only is that an ordinary junk thought, it also is too much work this is restlessness. The mind gets restlessness, and so it just restless, restless, restless with these thoughts. And that's a hindrance to itself in the sense that when the mind is restless, we're not relaxed. We're not at peace. And so now we begin to see even junk thoughts. Just letting the mind just wander around is actually a whole lot more work than needs to be done. And it is unsatisfying. That's why the mind keeps jumping from thought to thought to thought to thought because it doesn't get itself into a state of satisfaction. Now we're intentionally with wholesome thoughts practicing to get the mind and the feelings into a state of satisfaction. But the old habit of the mind is to spin up again, go back into hindrance, and we need to be sharp so that we can, aha, I see you again, Myra. Aha, I see you again. And that'll allow us then to uh, to not have those hindrances remain long enough to pull us out. So we keep throwing those thoughts out, and, and that helps us to maintain that good, wholesome state. So that once we get into that really good, wholesome state, now the thoughts that arise are all going to be wholesome thoughts. Mm. And what are the kind of wholesome thoughts that we can have at that would be thoughts about this present moment in the and especially in the sense of the teachings of the buddha like with the eightfold noble path so we could say all right this thought is how's my investigation i investigate my investigation how's my effort i investigate the effort 
how's my sati? Do I have sati on the in-breath? Do I have sati on the out-breath? So we begin to investigate our whole quality of investigation. We begin to investigate also, how's my attitude? Have I got the can-do attitude? Can I do this? Or am I giving myself the attitude that this is hard? This is a lot of work. This is struggle. Or am I giving myself the attitude, wow, this is a piece of cake. I'm really good at this. And so this is the kind of wholesome thoughts that we're going to have is going to be wholesome thoughts of investigating the investigation, to investigate the effort, to investigate uh, the mind itself. How does the mind work? To begin to see the feelings. But in this case, the feelings that we're investigating are the feelings of sukha and pity. We're investigating the feeling of what does it feel like to feel really secure? We spent all this time knowing what it's like to feel insecure. Now it's time to start focusing. What does it feel like to feel really good? What does it feel like to feel really satisfied? What does it feel like? What is contentment? Do I feel contentment? What is it to feel like satisfied? Well, I really am satisfied. This really is satisfying. That's the kind of thoughts that we want to have, all wholesome thoughts, always investigating, investigating the wholesomeness, investigating the way the mind works, investigating feelings, investigating the attention or the mindfulness. How is my mindfulness? These are the things that are worthy of being investigated, but we can't investigate only the wholesome when we have the unwholesome mixed in with it. So here we're going to take the time then is to get very good at detecting what is unwholesome so that we can throw it out immediately. We don't have to say, oh, this is just a little dart. It's not a great big arrow. Because we'll have thoughts like that, relative thinking that, oh, this is only a little suffering. (laughs) But when we say, yes, but this too is in fact a dart. This, too, is like an arrow. It needs to be pulled out. So this is the way to begin to do. This is the right view becomes a skill when we become skilled at recognizing what we used to think was wholesome. Now we can see the dangers. And once we see the dangers, now we can get the escape. And so the way that we begin to see these, uh, the dangers in this is looking at how we feel. That being angry at Susie actually is covering up the feeling of fear. When we feel fearless, when we feel safe and secure, then who needs that argument with Aunt Susie? And so what we're actually doing is, is that most people who are champions are not willing to accept that they're champions until they prove their championship to themselves. This was very clear in the Old West with gunslingers, and in fact, I would say nearly a third of the movies that have made about the Old West is the old gunslinger who was so good that he managed to make it into old age, and so he's got quite a reputation as a gunslinger. And yet the new kid on the block who wants to have the name for the gunslinger keeps trying to challenge the guy to get him to finally fight, right? Why is that? Because the kid does not yet trust himself as being a real gunslinger. He's got to go, and he would rather die in the gunfight than to have that doubt about is he good enough yet. That's how we test ourselves with with our hindrances. Am I good enough yet? Am I good enough yet? Am I good enough yet? And guess what? We keep giving ourselves the same answers that we gave ourselves when we were kids. We got into the habit of answering that question. No, I ain't good enough yet. I still have work to do. I still have more sati. I don't have enough sati. I need more joy. I don't have enough. I got to get rid of more hindrances. I haven't gotten rid of them all. Okay, you hear how that... That's the mindset that we get in. We need to change that to recognize, no, that too is a hindrance to think like that. And to start having thoughts about you are already good enough. 
you're already enlightened, in fact. Why should you try to work with anything? You're already enlightened. You've already got everything you need. You're already okay. That's the attitude of the winner. And the, th and the point of it is, is that, yes, we do have to prove that self to ourselves also, but we don't have to get into a gunfight to prove it. What we need to do is to clean out the mind. And when we can clean out the mind, we know we can clean out the mind. And when we get to the point that we know for absolute for sure that no matter how messed up the mind gets, we can clean it out. That is the first step of nobility, the first knowledge that is really noble, profoundly noble, and a factor of the path, the kind of thoughts that are never held by ordinary people, is the kind of thought of, I've got this. No matter how messed up my mind is, I can clean that out. This is the kind of attitude that we're looking for, the attitude of, I got this. I can handle this. My mind is not that messed up. It's not a monkey mind. Or even if it is a monkey mind, I've got you, monkey. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way that we begin to look at it, as if you were a champion. That's wholesome. To know that you can manage this. You've got it. But that is a skill that is also developed. This is one's right attitude or the Sama Sankapa part that makes the whole path worth practicing. Once we get it to where we've got right investigation, we've got good investigation, we've got good effort, we've got uh, the skills that we need, then this fourth skill of right attitude is what's needed to bring the mind together into unification. The unification of mind is actually called Sama Arya Samati. This, uh, now, that's almost always in English translated to right noble concentration. And by calling it that, we miss the point completely. <clears throat> the mind is not concentrated in, that, in the regards of what is concentration, because in that regard, concentration means that the mind is ignoring something for instance, if you have frozen concentrated orange juice, what does that mean? It means that you're concentrating the orange juice by taking the water out of it so that it can be transported easily and sold easily. But it's not consumed easily in its concentrated form. We want, in fact, that orange juice to be whole, not concentrated. We want to put the water back into it. In that sense, to make it consumable, we have to make it samati again by putting the very water back into it that was taken out in the process of concentration. Mm. This is why we have uh, so much trouble with meditation is because people think that they've got to concentrate the mind or focus the mind. No, what we need to do is to steady and settle the mind. And once we do that, we still want to be settled in, in the way of, let's put it this way, a camera. A camera can take a picture if the camera is still, depending upon the speed of the camera. In the very, very old days, the camera had to be on a tripod. And the guy would open the lens to let the light in, and people had to sit still for a long time, and then he would put the lens back on. Okay, modern cameras can now be handheld, but even many people when doing a handheld camera will still have mo jerky motion in their hand, which means that they can't, the, the, the video that they take is not quite clear, it's jerky, it's hard to look at, difficult to see. And if it's uh, uh, a, a situation to where something really happens, they may lose control of the camera They like they have to duck. There's been videos, for instance, of the 9-11 attack and somebody's seeing uh, with their camera taking video while the smoke and the debris and everything is rolling right towards them. But when it gets too close, they forget about the camera and they run. And then what does the camera see? It just sees garbage. It just sees junk because the camera is in his hand and it's shaking all over the place. 
So we need to think of samadhi as more of stability of the camera to get it to hold still so that it can look at something. But when we think of the mind as concentrated, that's like the shutter is closed. It is not seeing anything at all. Okay. Uh, an example of that is, is that the, uh, the dude who is a Dhamma dude, a computer scientist sitting at home writing code, and his dad comes into the room. And his dad wants something. But the Dhamma dude is too concentrated on his computer to pay attention to his dad. This is when concentration gets in the way. What we're not what we're looking for instead of concentration and concentrating the mind, we're looking for getting the mind stable enough so that it can open up its vista and see everything all at the same time. So it's very much like an opening process rather than a shutting down process. So when we have these four factors together, like sati, number one, to keep remembering to look, to keep remembering to look. Number two, to keep remembering to look. The first one is uh, the emphasis on remembering. The second one is on the emphasis to look, to sati and the investigation. This is what's needed. Once that investigation is done, now we have to take the right effort to throw out the hindrances. And so the faster we are in our investigation, the easier it is for the effort. In the beginning, effort is really strong because our mindfulness and our sat and our investigation is weak. Once sati and the investigation gets weak, the effort becomes really easy. And when the effort gets really easy and our investigation and our uh, and our sati gets really sharp, then we begin to get the attitude, this is easy. This is easy. I can do this. No matter how obstructed the mind gets, no matter how many hindrances I'm willing to wallow in, I can get myself right out of it because I can remember that I can do this. Okay, so when we bring these four factors together, this is what's called the unification of the mind, because we've got the right attitude, we've got the right effort, we've got the right sati, we've got the right investigation, and we're good to go. Now the mind is in a really noble state. Now that the mind is in a noble state, that means that we don't want anything. If we don't want anything, then we're unlikely to harm someone to get it. If we don't want anything, then we're unlikely to take something from someone. If we're unlikely, if we're uh, if we don't want anything, if we're really in a good spirit, then it's unlikely to start an argument with Aunt Susie, or to even talk about Aunt Susie and what a bitch she is to somebody else. <laughs> I'm good to go. I don't have to talk about how bad Aunt Susie is to make myself feel better. I already feel really great. So why should I talk down about her? So in this regard, this is where Sila actually becomes the outcome of one's correct practice, as opposed to being the foundation of one's practice. This is something that's very difficult because we can teach Sila to children. We expect that that's the first thing that needs to be learned. To where, in fact, really what needs to be learned is seclusion to get ourselves out of the argument with Aunt Susie so that we could come over here and get ourselves out of our internal argument about Aunt Susie. But when we're in a real argument with Aunt Susie, it's hard to drop it. But when we're away from Aunt Susie, it's still having the argument. If we don't see that that's a hindrance, it'll still be hard to drop. But as soon as we see that as a hindrance, being secluded from the real argument, and we see that this artificial or this remaining argument that's in the mind is making me unhappy. Now I can drop it. And if I drop it successfully, then I can come back to Susie with a smile, not with an argument. This is how we begin to see meta. Or this is how we begin to see one sila is the outcome of having the mind that's in this unified mm. state. 
Okay. And so this is the practice that we need is to get that mind into that really excellent state that comes from having gotten it into a really excellent state over and over and over and over and over again, time after time after time, we recognize I too can throw this hindrance out. I can throw this one out too. I can throw this stuff out. I don't have to think about that. I can feel good instead. And so this is the way that we, uh, we practice. We practice it getting the skill together so that we know what's a hindrance as a hindrance. And we define that hindrance as anything that's going to keep me from feeling marvelous. And when I feel marvelous, I'm hindrance free. That's third noble truth. But when you feel marvelous long enough, then that too becomes ordinary. Yeah, I feel marvelous. Everything's okay. <laughs> and that's where balance or equanimity comes in. But everything's mm. fine. Why? Because everything is already in such a successful, marvelous, happy state all the time. That's what just becomes ordinary. Mm. So, you guys have any questions about this? And I really feel that my question was answered in a very good way, so I know how to practice now, especially during everyday life. How long does it take before uh, marvelousness becomes ordinary? If you're very successful, three to five years. Really? Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a if you're unsuccessful, your marvelous becomes ordinary immediately. Because you've coming out of your marvelous back into hindrance. <laughs> <laughs> but when marvelous lasts five years, then it becomes ordinary by itself because it's the marvelous that becomes ordinary, not the mind again. Hmm. Yeah, that's, I guess that's kind of like. Uh... That's that's kind of like what some people I feel like idealize the idea of uh, like retirement to be. Like they think mm -hmm. about, oh, when I retire, things gonna be so good. But you hear some people say, "I retired," and then, you know, that that became old too. Like hanging out on the beach became old, or whatever it is. Even that guy is lucky. Let me tell you about the guys who are unlucky. And I and uh, I have one particular example, but it's widespread. But on one particular occasion, I happened to have been in the corporate offices of a company by the name of Sunoco. And here I'm talking about not Sun Oil Company, but the manufacturer who manufactures um, fancy uh, wrappings. They make, for instance, the Pringle can. They make the Mars bars wrappers, okay? It's a printing company, but they print on some pretty sophisticated stuff, okay? So that's the, the kind of products that they make. Now, in this corporate office, one of the, the, the hall, they have a hall there, and in that hall is covered with photographs of uh, uh, senior employees that have retired from the company. Okay, it's sort of like their Hall of Fame. But when you look very closely at this Hall of Fame, time after time after time, the retirement date and the death date are within a year or two of each other. So here's a photo of a guy who retired in 1965 and he died in 1967. Here's a guy who retired in 1970 and he died in 1970. Here's a guy who died in, or who was um, retired in 1975, and he died in 1976, right? What we're actually pointing to, and this, it depends upon where the location, but this location happened to have been the biggest industry in a, a, a fairly small town in Hartsville, South Carolina. And it's the major industry in the town. 
which means that when people retire from working at Sunoco products, what are they going to do with their lives? Because these guys have identified it, who they are with what their job has been. And when that job is taken away from them, yeah, every one of them was looking towards retirement. But when retirement came, what was left? Cutting the grass? <laughs> cutting the lawn? Trimming the hedge? That's all he's going to do now? He's turned into a, into a gardener? The funny part about it is, is that there was something that made a change that lasted for a while. And what that was is that there was a um, a young man, I think that it was in fact a son of, of one of these. He opened a Harley Davidson dealership, but it wasn't a regular motorcycle place where you're selling motorcycles and in the back you have motorcycle repair. No, what he did was is he had a place that had a a meeting room with couches and chairs and televisions and all of that kind of stuff so that when people would buy a motorcycle, they joined his club and he gave guys a reason to live by having a a Harley dealership. And that lasted for a while. That was actually, it increased the lifespan of some of these guys by three, four, five years. And so you can imagine that occasionally one of them's going to crash and kill himself on his motorbike, but the statistics are better that if he sits at home, he'll probably croak just as fast or faster. <laughs> <laughs> so your idea then that retirement is going to be a wonderful thing and everybody thinks about retirement, but when they actually do it, guess what? It winds up having its own kind of hindrances. And so the best thing to do is to, is to plan not to retire someday, but to retire right now. Hmm. And you may not retire forever, but you could retire right now. Retire for 10 minutes at least. Yeah. Let's take 10 minutes to retire. Maybe if we get good at it, we can retire for an hour. This is the beginning of the way to look is don't talk about retirement in the six of when you get so old, you're an old man, you can't work anymore. Don't think about retirement is what you can do with your mind right now. Let's get out of the work, work a day world. Let's, let's quit. Let's retire. Let's put ourselves in a position that got no work to do and nothing to do and no place to go and everything is hunky dory and the grass grows by itself. Everything is cool. Guess what, guys? That's not going to last long. Hindrances will come back up. You will have the thought of, oh, I've got to go to work. So be careful because those (laughs) thoughts will come back. (laughs) And when they do, catch them. Aha, I caught you again. So that you can continue your retirement. Whether you're employed or not has nothing to do with whether you're retired or not. Relax. Live a happy life. Doesn't matter what you do. This is where Bhikkhu Das is talking about it in the void mind. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with a void mind. Do it with pleasure. Don't do it because you're supposed to, or don't do it because you have to, or don't do it because if you don't do it, you'll feel bad. Do what you're going to do because you get a good kick out of doing it. Begin to see everything is not work. This is a toy. This is a toy to play with. Let your life become a life filled with toys rather than filled with work to do. Just a matter of perspective, a matter of your attitude. The attitude is different. The victim has work to do. The winner has toys to play with. Great. I have a good opportunity today because it's Sunday and I'm going to work right now. Uh Uh-huh. Nice, have fun. (laughs) 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 Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, guys. Well, we'll leave it at that then. We'll see you later. Keyshawn, you have anything to say? Uh, I, I was just going to uh, echo that and say, like, I started to find that um, at my work, like, the modeling software that I use, as, as I'm kind of getting better at it, too, um, I started to, like, kind of see it almost as, like, a video game a little bit. It's kind of, like, more fun to, to play with it in that way, which is nice. That's right. That's exactly right. Let's leave it with this. Kids, even eight-year-olds, get really good at playing with cell phones and computers and all that kind of stuff. But an old lady of 60, she can't. Why can't? Because she sees the computer as work to do of strange things, got lots of features that I don't know, and she feels insecure, and she doesn't learn. The kid sees the computer as a toy to play with. Mm -hmm. And so they begin to take it apart and look at it and find out what's there. Yep. Not afraid of it at all. The old lady is afraid of the computer because she sees it as work to do, something she needs. <laughs> That's so funny. I was definitely afraid of like the modeling software when I first joined. I was like, this is so complicated. How am I ever going to figure this out? <laughs> and that will slow you down if you just play with that it. That slows us down. That's the victim's attitude. See everything with the, with the winner's attitude. I can do that. That's just a toy. What, a new piece of software to play with? Hot dog. <laughs> exactly. Okay, guys. Hot dog. We'll see you later. Yeah. Thank you very much, Matt. All right. See you.